There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day everyone and welcome back to episode 2 of the August 1915 Offensive. Before we crack on, don't forget to check out the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at amhpodcast and on Facebook. As you may have gathered from the previous episode, this whole August offensive was a complicated mess of advances, counterattacks, magnificent but tragic fighting, lost units and moments of absolute forehead-slapping command stupidity. When I cover this event in my other podcast focusing on the Australia and the Great War, It'll probably run the 8 to 10 episodes, but I shall spare you from that on this episode. Instead, I'll cover the main events and give the remainder a passing mention where appropriate. We may get through it all in this episode, but if you don't mind a bit of a flutter, I recommend ducking down to the TAB and putting a couple of dollars each way on a third episode. We'll see how we go. Now, it's widely considered that the offensive began with the Australian attack at Lone Pine. Well, not quite. From our last episode, you remember that, although being forbidden by Kitchener to launch any attacks at Cape Hellas, General Hamilton had allowed himself to be talked into launching a few. Now he thought to himself that maybe those attacks, although costly failures, may not be a total waste. If the Turks could be convinced that another attempt was being made to open up the Hellas position in the south, then their focus may be drawn away from the actual attempt to break out to the northwest. It just so happened that Birdwood had been presented with a request from Brigadier General McLagan to sort out a particularly inconvenient Turkish position in just that area which Hamilton wanted his wee little diversion. In a nutshell, Tasmania Post had been established on the top of a ridge line. The problem was that from that ridge, the Australians couldn't freely observe the going-on in the gully immediately to their front. The Turks were actually digging communication trenches forward and establishing a new trench only 40 yards from the Australians. To attempt to counter this, underground saps were dug forward from Tasmania Post, which popped up out of the ground just short of the Turks. From here, Australians could listen in and lob an occasional bomb, but it wasn't enough to stop the Turks. A raid was made, but with only one Turk being captured, it was decided that something bigger was needed. It was noted that four of the saps were actually under the Turkish trench. Perfectly sighted, the stack full of explosives and blow the trench to pieces, and then the infantry could just lob in and occupy what was left. This was to be Hamilton's diversion. Led by Captain Lean of the 11th Battalion, four parties would rush forward towards the site of the exploded mines. With all in place as the moon set on the night of the 31st of July, the mines were triggered. Unfortunately, only the ones at the ends managed to go up right away. Lean was left in a bit of a sticky situation. Two mines were yet to go off, but if he waited, then the Turks would reoccupy the craters left by the other two. He had to take the risk and order his men forward. On the way, the northern centre mine decided to go off. It took care of the Turkish defenders, but also managed to kill one Australian and left the others momentarily shell-shocked. The fourth mine never went off. What followed was a tough fight. 
Initially, the Turks were driven back down into what was appropriately known as the Valley of Despair. But they soon rallied, and fierce fighting ensued, with the Australians establishing blocks at either end of their position. During the night, the saps were converted into communication trenches, and by early morning, the old Turkish parapet had been reversed and a serviceable frontline trench, now known as Lean's Trench, was established. And not before time. As the sun rose, Turkish artillery rained shells on the position in what Bean describes as a severe trial of their nerve. The parapet was regularly blown in and hastily repaired. At 5.30am, the bombardment ceased and the Australians prepared themselves for the Turkish counter-attack. The attack had cost the 11th Battalion 36 killed and 73 wounded, including Lean, but it had put an end to the Turkish threat to Tasmania Post. But the true value of the success would be felt in a few days' time. Had the Turks been in possession of that trench on the 6th of August, they would have been able to pour fire into the flank of the troops attacking Lone Pine. But the fight at Lean's Trench was not finished. For the Australians, it was a minor but important skirmish to make their position a bit more secure. But the Turks saw it as something completely different. They had a policy that any ground lost must be retaken. The loss of this trench resulted in the execution of one company commander of the 48th Regiment and the other company commander volunteered to retake the trench, or the Turkish machine guns could fire on him and his men if they failed. A fierce counterattack was pushed forward on the night of the 5th, 6th of August, the night before the scheduled commencement of the general offensive. The Turks succeeded in occupying parts of Lean's trench, and it was only desperate fighting, which cost the Australians a further 55 killed and 100 wounded, that stabilised the situation. The 6th of August was spent in repairing the damage to Lean's trench in the hope that it would be ready in time to support the attack on Lone Pine. The stage was now set. Hamilton still wanted the Turks to believe that an attack was to be made from the south, and so he gave permission for Brigadier General Street of the British 88th Brigade to launch some small diversionary attacks commencing at 3.50pm on the 6th of August. As was fast becoming tradition at Capelli's, Street ignored Hamilton's directive, and instead of making just enough noise to keep the Turkish divisions in the south, Street launched a full-scale assault towards Krithia and Ajibaba. He didn't have sufficient artillery to support the assault, and the result was a typical Cape Heller's bloodbath. The 88th Brigade had suffered a further 3,469 casualties. To put that into perspective, a standard British Infantry Brigade, circa 1915, consisted of just over 4,000 troops. So in essence, this little diversion destroyed an entire brigade. What's worse is that it didn't even work as a diversion. The German lad in charge of the Turkish armies on the peninsula, Otto Lehmann von Sanders, knew that an attack was coming, and long before the English attacked at Helles, he also knew that the main assault would be made at Anzac. The artillery had been bombarding the area for the previous three days. Kind of a dead giveaway, really. He had already ordered a reserve division to be sent north, so it was all just a tragic waste of time and lives. But then again, that could be said for the entire Gallipoli campaign. And that brings us to Lone Pine, which is the part which most Australians think of when these battles are mentioned. But it was only the opening act, and one which two of the most senior commanders at Anzac were opposed to. General Brudenell White and the British Chief of Staff of Australian and New Zealand Forces, General Harold Walker, protested loudly during the planning stages. But when they were told that the attack was happening, whether they liked it or not, they set out to figure out just how to make it work without losing their entire force. The two frontline trenches were separated by between 60 and 150 yards of no man's land, every single yard of which was covered by Turkish machine gun and rifle fire. 
Those men who had to cover the full 150 yards had no chance. For rather than just accept that fact, Walker and White ordered a series of underground tunnels to be pushed out from the Australian salient, known as the Pimple, towards the Turkish line. The pointy ends of these tunnels would be opened before the preparatory barrage ended, and those troops would only have to cover the last 40 yards or so while their Turkish opponents were still rattled by the artillery. Three tunnels were filled with explosives and detonated prior to other troops leaving the Australian trenches in the hope of providing some cover for the troops making the longer charge. One tunnel was dug almost to the Turkish trench. As the fighting was taking place in the Turkish position, this tunnel would be opened up and would provide a vital communication trench between the two positions. Most of the ammunition and troops who would follow up the attack over the coming days would advance along this trench and the wounded would be evacuated with some level of protection. Von Sanders may have known that the breakout would be launched at Anzac, but he and the Turks didn't believe the Anzacs would attack Lone Pine, the most strongly defended section of the Turkish front. Many believed that the part of the barrage directed at Lone Pine was just to obscure the true point of attack. This belief that Lone Pine was unlikely to be directly attacked, combined with the preparations made by Walker and White, meant that the initial charge was conducted with very few casualties. The front was about 220 yards or 160 odd metres wide. So that's two and a half Olympic swimming pools laid end to end. It always amazes me when reading about these Gallipoli battles just how small a space each fight is squeezed into. This charge where hundreds of men made the initial assault occurred in an area not much longer than my driveway. Granted, I live on acreage and my driveway is longer than your standard suburban driveway, but I can still drag a wheelie bin to the gate in under two minutes. Anyway... Having covered the ground in reasonably good condition, the Australians were surprised to see that the trenches had been covered over with thick pine logs. These hadn't shown up on the aerial surveillance photos, so the troops were momentarily confused as to what to do next. But showing the initiative, which would come to characterise Australian troops, rather than wait around for some orders, some began hauling away at the logs, while others fired down through the gaps and others poked down with their bayonets. Still others just jumped over the frontline trench and dropped into the uncovered communication trenches behind. The tunnel leading back to the Australian lines was broken open and troops poured in via that avenue. Getting into the trenches turned out to be the easy part. Lone Pine was all about that subterranean fighting inside the trench. There was no room or time for fancy military manoeuvring and all that stuff. No way. This was about brutality and savagery. This was rifle butts and bayonets and bombs thrown around corners and even bare hands if necessary. The rules of civilised warfare were left above ground. If you had to kick your enemy in the plums to get the advantage over him, then so be it. Stab a man in the back? You better believe it. Robert John Gamage of the 1st Battalion described what it was like in those trenches. The moans of our own poor fellows and also Turks as we tramped on their wounded bodies was awful. We rushed them out of their second and third line of trenches in half an hour. The wounded bodies of both Turks and our own in the second and third line, especially the third, were piled up to three and four deep. The bombs simply poured in, but as fast as our men went down, another would take his place. Besides our own wounded, the Turks wounded lying in our trenches were cut to pieces with their own bombs. We had no time to think of our wounded. Their pleas for mercy were not heeded. Some poor fellows lay for 30 hours waiting for help, and many died still waiting. End quote. But the Anzacs were getting the better of it. The surprised Turks were confused and unsure of how to stop this brutal onslaught. In a panicked voice, a Turkish battalion commander named Mustafa Kemal, no relation to the legendary Mustafa Kemal, told the Turkish commander Zeki Bey, We're lost, we're lost. 
After the war, Zeki confirmed to Charles Bean things were clearly critical and that if any further attack came at that point, the Turks would have lost the whole position. But Zeki was made of sterner stuff than the hapless battalion commander. With the help of others, he stabilised the situation and Lone Pine descended to another circle of hell. The fighting at Lone Pine continued for another five days. From the rifle butts and bayonets of the opening exchanges, over the following days it was about bombs. Constant supply was being brought up by both sides and the throwing went on until the bloke's arm was too tired to throw any more. Then someone else would take over. The Turkish bombs, resembling black cricket balls, had an eight-second fuse, and Bean records that the individual bombs sometimes made two or three trips across no-man's land before exploding. Although how anyone could identify individual bombs, I'll never know. But as soon as one fell in the trench, whoever was closest would reach down, pick it up, and hurl it back towards the Turks. Have a think about that for a second. You're standing in a trench. This little black ball lobs in with the fuse hissing away. You've got maybe two or three seconds to reach down grab that sucker and send it back from whence it came. At any moment, within that three seconds, that thing could go off and kill or seriously maim you. And once you got rid of that one, another one might pop in and you have to do it all over again. The other alternative was to throw a sandbag on the thing. But if you've ever lifted a sandbag, you'll know they're not the lightest things in the world. The grenade is just as likely to go off while you're hefting the bag in its general direction. Either option doesn't do much for your life expectancy. The Australian version wasn't quite so sophisticated as the Turks. The immortal jam tin bomb is exactly what it sounds like. An empty jam tin filled with an explosive charge and any nasty bits and pieces which could be crammed in. Small stones, bits of rusty old barbed wire, maybe a nail or three from a packing crate. The lid goes on with a detonator and a fuse and this pinnacle of military improvisation goes up to the line to be thrown at the Turks. As you can imagine, this fighting took a heavy toll. Hands were regularly blown off and blindness was also a common wound, either the flash of the blast or the grit being blown into a man's eyes. On this patch of ground measuring about 300 yards across, seven Victoria Crosses were awarded. The actions of some occurred only metres away from others, with neither one even being aware of what was going on just metres away, particularly during the opening days. I won't go through each of them here, but I encourage you to look into them in your own time. But as an example, I'll relate to you the story of one of the recipients, probably because this is about the best opportunity to tell you about one of the most remarkable figures of the Gallipoli campaign, Alfred Shout. Now, like a lot of the best Australians, Shout was a New Zealander. He had served in the Boer War and applied for a commission in the AIF upon the outbreak of war in 1914 and joined the 1st Battalion as a lieutenant. On the day of the landing, 25th of April, he landed with his men and began what would be a very busy day. He was sent to Baby 700, where the fighting was particularly fierce. The Turks counterattacked later in the afternoon, and soon only Shout and Leslie Morshead, remember him, were the only two officers left. They fell back, with Shout being the last to leave the position. On the way down, he came across Lieutenant Colonel Braund of the 2nd Battalion, desperately holding a position on Walker's Ridge. Braund ordered Shout to head down to the beach and bring up reinforcements, which he duly did. He then dug in on the flank and stayed there for the next couple of days. By the second day, there were about a dozen wounded men in his part of the trench, so despite being wounded multiple times himself, he carried the wounded out of the firing line. He was awarded the Military Cross. Jump forward to August, and Shout is in the thick of it at Lone Pine as a captain. On the 9th of August, he led his men forward in an attack. I'll let his citation tell the rest of the story. 
On the morning of the 9th of August, 1915, a very small party led by Captain Shout charged down the trenches strongly occupied by the enemy and personally threw four bombs among them, killing eight and routing the remainder. In the afternoon of the same day, from the position gained in the morning, he captured a further length of trench under similar conditions and continued personally to bomb the enemy at close range under very heavy fire until he was severely wounded, losing his right hand and left eye. This most gallant officer has since succumbed to his injuries. It wasn't the Turks who got him, though. In a bit of an indication of just how hectic things were, he ambitiously lit four bombs at once. But he wasn't quick enough in getting rid of them, and one went off in his hand. While waiting to be taken out of the line, he had a cup of tea and chatted with his men, saying he'll recover soon. But he died two days later. The Turks counterattacked the Lone Pine position on a number of occasions, but the Australian position was too strong. But the Australians couldn't break out either. They were stuck where they were, unable to advance further into the cup, which may have been of some use in the overall scheme of things. But as it was, the position which was being fought so hard for, and was killing men at a prodigious rate, was basically no real improvement on the position the Australians had leapt out from on the afternoon of the 6th of August. Maybe its real value was the effect it had on the other parts of the offensive. It was thought, at the time, that the fighting would oblige the Turks to keep troops tied up at Lone Pine while the main show went on. One of the main thrusts of this offensive would be launched by the New Zealanders. They would take the high point of Chunk Bear. From here, they would have a bird's eye view of the entire battlefield of Anzac and deny the Turks that very same view. Having seized that in the night, they would continue on to Hill 971, supported by a charge by the Australian Light Horse at the Neck. At the same time, the British landing at Suvla Bay would be carried out, with those troops moving into the hills to the north, and happy days, everything is tickety-boo, and the Gallipoli campaign is over and done with. How do you reckon it went? Let's now have a look at that Kiwi thrust, as it was the key to this whole thing, and also led to some of the most epic fighting of the campaign. Due to the terrain in this area, the heights of Chunk Bear could only be reached by climbing two main ridges, neither one of which could accommodate the entire attacking force. They would need to split up, climb the ridges, and meet up again prior to launching the main attack. That sounds pretty simple, but in fact, like everything in this campaign, it wasn't. The right-hand column would advance to Rhododendron Ridge. Some would go up Sasley Deer up the southern side, while the others went up Chalak Deer. Sasley Deer had a bit of a fork in it, so the men would have to be careful to not take the wrong one. The left assaulting column were the ones tasked to take the ground which would link up with the palms coming in from Suvla. They had to pass Asli Deer and Chilek Deer, turn right onto Agile Deer and take the Maclagic Bear. Added to this, the Turks had outposts at places like Tabletop, Old Number 3 Post and Destroyer Hill. These would have to be taken, but if it wasn't done quickly and quietly, then the Turkish forces on Chalik Bear would know something was up. Oh, and it all had to be done at night and to schedule. The last thing they wanted was to make the main assault on Chalik Bear in broad daylight. The covering forces for the right column headed off as soon as it got dark enough, and they did well. The force consisted of the New Zealand Mounted Rifles, made up of the Wellington, Auckland and Canterbury Regiments, the Otago Mounted Rifles and the Maori Contingent. The Aucklanders and Wellingtons took Old Number 3, Destroyer Hill and Tabletop, while the Canterbury's, Otago and Maoris forced their way up Charlotte Deer and took Bohots. The only problem was, it took two and a half hours longer to achieve than had been planned. The attacking force which was to follow on was supposed to leave their positions at 10.45pm. 
It was after midnight when the position was captured and the main force could move forward. Already, the plan was behind schedule. Junk Bear had to be taken by dawn, which at this time of the year was around 4am. Out on the left, it was a similar story. The two new army battalions pushed onto Argyll Deer and from there up to Bademoclake Bear. And I realise I've totally butchered the pronunciation of that. The left assaulting force would have a clear run up to the ridges leading down to Suvla Bay. But they were also behind time. And the other problem was that even though the Turkish forward positions were taken relatively quietly, as you can imagine, with rifle firing and grenades exploding, no attack is ever going to be quiet. The noise of these fights told the Turks that something was afoot. As the Lone Pine attack was being pushed home, the Turkish commander, Assad, sent his reserves to Lone Pine, including two regiments under the German colonel Hans Kanningsgeiser. The man Mustafa Kemal described as the most valuable German officer in our army. Arriving ahead of his regiments, Kanningsgeiser was told that his troops wouldn't be needed. Hearing the fighting going on in the foothills to the north, and in consultation with Assad, he decided that his troops would be needed up at Chanak Bear. He headed in that direction at about the same time the Kiwis' right assaulting column was heading off. Brigadier General Francis Johnson led the right assaulting column off with the sounds of a Maori haka behind them. There are quite a few anecdotal reports that Johnson may have been three sheets to the wind by early morning on the 7th. He was known to enjoy a tipple. As was also common in those days, he preferred professional, regular soldiers over the part-timers who had found themselves in positions of command. One such part-timer was Colonel William Malone of the Wellington Battalion. For his part, Malone didn't think much of Johnson. When it came to Johnson's plans for the attack on Shannock Bear, Malone, it would be fair to say, was not a fan. There had been insufficient detail in the planning stage. Malone stated, The Brigadier will not get down to bedrock. He seems to think that night attack and the taking of entrenched positions without artillery is like kissing one's hand. Yesterday he burst forth, If there's any hitch, I shall go right up and take the place myself. All, as it were, in a minute and on his own. He is an extraordinary man. If it were not so serious, it would be laughable. End quote. So from that, it would be safe to say that, that the Brigadier goes more for the bullshit and bluster form of leadership. The troops move off with Malone's Wellingtons leading. As they passed Tabletop, they encountered a group of Turks who had been missed by the covering party. They were keen to surrender, and sorting that out in such confined spaces held up the advance a bit more. But they were soon on the move again. They arrived at Rhododendron Ridge, late but intact and ready to go. All they needed was for the Canterbury's, who were coming up Sasley Deer, to join them, then they could go forward together and take Chunnock Bear. And so they waited. And waited. It turns out the Sasley Deer was incredibly difficult to navigate in the dark. When an order to turn around to find the correct path was misinterpreted, the entire Canterbury Battalion returned to the start line. By 4.30am, with the sun just starting to light the horizon, Johnson was still waiting for the Canterbury's. Up at the head of the column, Malone's Wellingtons were joined by the Aucklanders with Johnson and his staff officer, Templey, at around 5.30am. Templey wanted the two battalions to attack. Malone was against the idea. Johnson said nothing. In fact, according to Templey, Johnson had sat for hours in absolute silence. He was frequently barely coherent, and his judgment and mind were obviously clouded. End quote. This seems to support the claims that Johnson was either drunk or having some kind of breakdown. Burwood's orders for all commanders in the assault was to push hard regardless of what was going on around them. 
in following these orders, Johnson should have pushed on as soon as it was clear the Canterbury's weren't going to arrive before daylight. But they sat there, less than 500 yards from their objective. Turns out that at this stage there were only 20 Turkish infantry on the summit and they were asleep. At 8am, around four hours after having arrived at the position, Templey sent a message to divisional headquarters saying that he was waiting at his current position. That four-hour delay would prove fatal. Kamingsgeiser, remember him, he arrived at Chanik Bear at 7am and roused the 20 troops who were apparently asleep at the wheel, not even realising that two battalions of the enemy were within spitting distance, figuratively speaking. From his position, Kamingsgeiser could see the British fleet unloading troops at Suvla, although there seemed to be no firing coming from that direction. In fact, the only sounds of fighting seemed to be coming from the direction of Lone Pine. It must have seemed somewhat surreal to be standing on the key summit of the whole area, seeing mass troops to the north, and yet everything was quiet. He didn't have to wait long to find out he was, in fact, in the most important part of the fight. Soon after rousing the garrison, he saw the Kiwis begin to advance. He reported, The English approached slowly, in single file, splendidly equipped and with white armbands on the left arms, apparently very tired, and were crossing a hillside on our flank, emerging in continually increasing numbers from the valley below. I immediately sent an order to my infantry. This was the 20-man strong artillery covering platoon, instantly to open fire. I received this answer. We can only commence to fire when we receive an order from our battalion commander. This was too much for me altogether. I ran to the spot and threw myself among the troops who were lying in a small trench. What I said, I cannot recollect. They began to open fire, and almost immediately the English laid down, without answering our fire, or apparently moving in any other way. They gave me the impression that they were glad to be spared further climbing. End quote. Bean later wrote of this incident, thus passed by far the best chance of winning a great campaign. Cannonsgeiser made the most of the pause. He saw two companies of Kamal's 19th Division on nearby Battleship Hill and got them heading towards Chanuk Bear. His own troops were also starting to arrive. Rather than the 20 slumbering troops they would have faced three hours ago, the New Zealanders were now faced by a formidable force. At around 9am, Kamingsgeiser was wounded in the chest, but he had achieved his purpose and could be evacuated with the knowledge that he'd salvaged what would have been a disastrous situation. It was around this time that Godley, the overall commander of New Zealand troops at Gallipoli, received Templey's message. Probably in a somewhat disbelieving tone, given that those troops should have attacked long before dawn, Godley responded, ordering Johnson to attack at once. Charles Bean gives a good account of just how things were back at Godley's headquarters in the early hours of the 7th of August. He was visiting Godley's headquarters as he wished to see the left assaulting column head off. While there, he witnessed an exchange which started him thinking that things were not going well. Godley asked one of his staff officers if both brigades had passed. The officer reported that Monash's stretcher bearers were just passing. At this point, Godley had under his command Brigadier Monash's Australian 4th Infantry Brigade. The stretcher bearers were always bringing up the rear, as obviously they would be needed to pick up the wounded as they went. Godley believed that with Monash's bearers passing, that should be the last of his brigade to pass. But he was unaware that Monash was his first brigade in the order of march. The Indians had yet to get to his position. It's rather telling that the commander didn't know the order of march. It was also an indication of just how far behind schedule things were running. Bean offered to go forward with the Indians in order to find out what progress Monash was making. 
Walking along the beach, he felt a whack on his upper right leg. It took him a few moments to realise he'd been shot. Then he made his way back to Godley, had a sip of whisky, and went to the dressing station. After that, he hobbled away to take up position on the Sphinx to witness the charge of the Australian light horse at the neck. And that's a good point to leave it for now. The situation, as we leave it at, say, about 4am on the 7th of August, is Malone and his Wellingtons, with the Aucklanders, sitting 500 yards from the summit of Chunuk Bear, waiting to attack. Monash's brigade has moved off for its part in the proceedings. Godley's confused, everything is running behind time, and while the British Navy is preparing to unload British troops at Suvla Bay, two regiments of Australian light horse are preparing to charge at the neck. Next episode, we'll cover the farce of the Suvla landings, the epic battle with Chanak Bear, and the tragic events at the neck. Catch you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.